Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. I recently sat down with Rob Rousa, CEO of Brigham Minerals, to walk through the Brigham Minerals story since 2012, as well as talk about some of their recent transactions and activity in the capital markets. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Rob had to say. All right, Rob, good afternoon and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate you having us, Tim. You've been a tremendous supporter of the mineral space, so happy to be here and really happy to be with your listeners to tell them more about Brigham Minerals. You bet, you bet. So as we do in all episodes, we'd love to get a little personal context on yourself. You've been working with Bud Brigham for a while. So when we get into the evolutionary career, uh, there hasn't been too many stops, right? But where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Do you come from an oil family, a finance family? I, what, what's funny is we were just together a couple of weeks ago and I found out you're from New York. So we yep. have some common roots there, but yeah, no. So I uh, grew up in Long Island, lived there till I was about eight. My dad has an accounting and finance background. So similarly to him, unintendedly wound up in, in accounting and finance. We moved to Texas in probably 1980 or so, went to the University of Texas at Austin, uh, graduated with a BBA in accounting. Shortly thereafter, worked for Deloitte & Touche for three years. Interestingly, was probably more heavily involved in restaurant audits, but also to a lesser degree was involved in energy company audits. After that, uh, went to an internal audit, kind of a financial management development program at Cooper Industries. So at that point, Cooper had both the uh, energy supply company uh, businesses, as well as other businesses, electrical parts, et cetera. So did that program for about three years, really enjoyed that, gave me the opportunity to travel across the, the world. Uh, as we looked at different or audited different manufacturing facilities. Uh, it was really during that time that Cooper placed a heavy reliance on their MBAs, working directly with their CEO to help devise the business plan strategies, work on their M&A transactions. And so really understood at that point my desire to be in the management of the business, helping the decision-making process. So wanted to go back, get my master's in business accounting or business administration. So went to SMU, was there from 1998 to 2000. It was really because of my accounting background coming out of UT, I was able to skip many of the accounting classes. And so really during my first semester there at SMU, took an energy economics class with Jim Smith and just really opened my eyes up in terms of uh, the energy industry, uh, very fortunately, I uh, was able to get uh, an internship with Enron my first summer between my first and second years at MBA school. To the chagrin of many of my fellow students, uh, during my second year there at uh, SMU, decided to go with ExxonMobil instead of Enron. Very fortunately, I made that decision to, to go with Exxon instead of Enron. Entered uh, ExxonMobil in their corporate treasurer's group. So spent my first two years at ExxonMobil there in the Las Colinas corporate headquarters, which interestingly enough is now being sold by the them as they consolidate their offices in Houston. Quickly thereafter, spent three years in Houston uh, working both in the gas marketing group as well as the uh, development company. Uh, they're at the development company focused on project financing. So my last and final year, my sixth year there at ExxonMobil, I moved to Fairfax, Virginia. It was helping with some of their uh, project financings there in China, the Fujian refinery project. So interesting project to be involved with. Really at that time though, uh, spending a lot of time overseas, two to three weeks at a time in Hong Kong. We had two young kids, twins, less than one year, year old at that time. And very fortunately, the opportunity at Brigham came up. One of my good friends was the outside legal counsel on Thompson and Knight and introduced me to Gene Shepard, 
who uh, at that point was a CFO of Brigham uh, Exploration Company. So met with them, met with Bud and Lance and, and really felt something special. At that point, Brigham was just entering the, the play there in the Williston Basin and, and was off really off to the races at that point. No, that's great. So, you know, I have here, you were in a director of finance and an IR role for about five years up to 2011 with Brigham. And then the royalties chapter starts to begin. So what is Anthem Ventures? And then when did what's today known as Brigham Minerals come to the, the forefront? When I was reading on your website, it said that Bud started to buy minerals in the Bakken in late 2000. So give me a little insight there, kind of going inside the early days before a formal vehicle was created and why you guys were looking at that ahead of so many people and, and how it kind of percolated from there. Yeah. Probably good just to rewind the clock a little bit, just give people an explanation about Brigham Exploration because a lot of that that kind of toolkit that we developed to, to build Brigham Exploration, we transferred to Brigham Minerals and Brigham Resources. But so I joined uh, Brigham Exploration Company in 2006, just as we were starting to put together the position in the Wilson Basin. Interestingly, Brigham Exploration at that point had always been very technically heavy in terms of geologists, reservoir engineers, identify that the core rock, but very early in his career was involved in shooting 3D seismic, a lot of uh, exploration success along the Gulf Coast and in the Permian Basin, uh, really realized that he could transfer that knowledge, that technical prowess to uh, the Williston Basin and really identified a part of the basin uh, west of the Ness and Anacline in Williams and McKenzie counties that really nobody at that point was really targeting as perspective or people had drilled some wells in that area and really not very productive. So we thought we could take our prowess in terms of identifying good rock, take our technical teams in terms of the operational side and really convert that to a highly economic play. And so that process evolved from the 2008 through really 2009 period Obviously, there was the setback in 2008 as the market deteriorated very quickly. But right as we were coming out of the market, crews trading at $30 in early 2009, we have tremendous success, uh, I believe, in McKenzie County with one of our wells. It was the first long lateral in the Wilson Basin with 20 frack stages. IP was around probably 1,300 barrels a day of oil or so and really knew at that point we had something special. And very fortunately at that point, also crudes rebounding into the mid fifties. And so we, along with Credit Suisse, go back into the market, recapitalize the company. And now we're off into the races and ultimately drill a hundred wells in the Wilson Basin and sell that entity to, to uh, at that point, Statoil late 2011 uh, and close that sale in early 2012. So as you mentioned, Tim, one of the things that we had done was 2008, 2009, just with the realization that equipment was hard to come by, both rigs and frack crews, we were trying to increase the interest in every well that was drilled. And we thought that by incrementally increasing, having both a leasehold position as well as a mineral position in each drilling space unit that's being drilled by an operator, we can maximize the interest in every well drilled and really maximize the utilization of our equipment. So we put together a, a fairly decent position. One of the issues though, at that point being involved in a, a public traded EMP company was really getting the market to place a valuation on them, those minerals. And so ultimately at the end of the day, made the decision financially that we're better off selling the mineral position, redeploying that capital to a midstream system, which we're looking to uh, get up and, and ramping, which, which ultimately been very beneficially for us. Statoil at that place to hide quite a bit of value on that midstream system. And, and I think was one of the major reasons why ultimately they brought Brigham Exploration Company. So with that kind of that- So who, uh, just curious, so this is late 2000s, who did you sell that to? Because at the time- 
private uh, private group out of the Midland Basin that that Bud had known for a long time. Obviously, put that out competitively, but throughout kind of the history, there's always been a lot of folks involved in the mineral space. But I would say during that time, a lot of people were placing multiples on on cash flow. You know, looking at what people's checks were, putting multiple on that, making them an offer. So really, the realization in 2008, 2009 was we can take the next step and not just place evaluation on the PDP that's being produced, but what are all the undeveloped locations to come because of the resource play renaissance. And so that was really us using the technical prowess to identify the very best geology, understanding what future locations are to come and to be able to fully value that asset and try to transact with the seller. Are you signed up to go to the Mark Mineral Conference next week on Monday and Tuesday, April 18th to 19th at the Post Oak Hotel in Houston? If not, it's not too late. Be sure to visit www.mineralconference.com to secure your ticket now. I look forward to seeing you there. Now let's jump back into the episode. That's fantastic. So talk to me about, so you sell in 2012 on the, the bring exploration side. Now the formal bring a minerals entity, it started out self-funded by Bud in 2012. And then you guys brought in Warburg, Yorktown and Pinebrook in 2013. Now, Correct me if I'm wrong, you had Chris Phillips with NCAP, which is really early. And then Scott Noble did something in the Eagle Fruit with KKR. And then you guys are next. When did Carl start work? Was it 14 or were they 13 as well? Yeah, they might have been a little bit after us, maybe 14 or so. We'd have to, yeah. have to talk to Carl about that. But yeah, we were very early. So, so the punchline been- is you guys are one of the one of the first private equity back entities. Now you bring in three, which is interesting as well. I, I got to know Howard Newman quite well a few years back. And what what became apparent was that Pinebrook was never the anchor investor, but having Howard involved, he's such a an out-of-the-box thinker and, and such a great strategist that his value at the boardroom level was so important. And private equity guys loved having him in there, right? And he yeah. had the relationship with Warburg, obviously, and the track record with Warburg. But talk to me about, you know, you, you did the rounds and why you brought in three? Because that that's not as common to see uh, multiple private equities in a in a mineral venture. So going back a little bit and maybe just telling you a little bit more about the 2012 timeframe. So really wanting to ramp up the effort, we start hiring a technical team, geologists, reservoir engineers to start evaluating minerals. First minerals Brigham minerals acquired were October of 2012. So this is probably one month after Continental has the unveiling of their scoop stack play. And so we immediately hit the ground. Uh, at that point, Pat Medlock uh, was the VP of uh, exploration, had had quite a bit of uh, Oklahoma experience, as well as Kevin Labby. And so both of those uh, individuals really helped us quickly get ramped up and, and were immediately buying minerals and scoop stack. We put together a fairly sizable position there. And throughout this process, we're talking to multiple private equity firms about funding both Brigham Minerals as well as the more traditional EMP, which ultimately was called Brigham Resources. And so really the three-headed private equity sponsorship group was really as a result of knowing that ultimately at the end of the day, we're going to need a significant amount of capital to work with. So in 2013, we raised $650 million between the three groups to fund both Brigham Resources and Brigham Minerals with the realization that if things go well, there's going to be more capital needed in the future. So we wanted three very strong, supportive entities to work with that are able to support us when we need more capital, they're able to provide it. And so both all three tremendous to work with. Obviously, you mentioned Howard Newman 
Howard's been a tremendous supporter of Brigham Minerals throughout the time frame. Pinebrook in particular has been a tremendous supporter as we think about three private equity firms and, and really post IPO, how they've liquidated uh, Pinebrook was the very last of the entities begin to begin the sale down process. And actually uh, that just started in March uh, of this year. So they, they, you can obviously folks can get on the, the SEC website, look at their form fours, but they finally at this point, I think disposed of about 2.2 million shares and now have about 3 million shares remaining. So they still own about 5% uh, of the company, but they were tremendously supportive of the company. Uh, Howard's tremendous backgrounds lived with us through multiple downturns. If you think about both 15, 16, after that, we get through that process. Uh, they're willing to, to re-up, add additional capital. They, we live through COVID. You know, they believe highly in the stock about the asset we put together. Uh, and finally, here at this point, they've just started the sell-down process. So obviously, all three, Warburg, Pinebrook, Warptown, tremendous supporters of us. And so uh, very thankful of having gotten them involved in 2013. Excellent. And, you know, we're, we'll get into the, the public phase of, of Brigham here in a bit. Before you guys went public, talk to me about the strategy and the footprint. So you start in the scoop stack. Mm -hmm. you, you guys just came off of the sale on the EMP side in the Bakken. Was that the, the two-punk strategy originally? And did you guys ever do kind of head of your own drill bit type stuff as well? Talk to me about how you built the portfolio and then we'll get into the IPO process. Yeah, so most uh, aggressively started in the scoop stack play. So as, as I mentioned earlier, it was really the technical team at that point had had a longstanding history work in Oklahoma. So it was very natural for us to ramp up that process. You had Continental out there deploying a significant amount of capital to those areas. So it was readily apparent that, that that those locations were going to get converted to pre developed producing because at the end of the day, you know, being private equity funded, we've got to realize that, you know, we need locations, all of our undeveloped locations to convert to pre developed producing locations to start generating cash flow because the realization was, uh, you know, the private equity hurdles at some point make you seek some type of exit. So whether that's a sale to someone or the eventuality that played for us played out for us going public there's always that realization so you know our thesis was always stay in the tier one areas of plays under well-capitalized operators because that's going to enhance the probability that your locations get uh, converted through producing we next layer in the gj gj basin position we go to a doug conference and just really start hearing about the tremendous amount tremendously good well results the very short drill times, the very small amount of capital required to drill these DJ Basin wells. In the DJ Basin, even back then, they're drilling six or eight wells in DSU at once, uh, drilling the entirety of the Nibrera, and in some instances, commingling that with Codell wells. And so it really, you could see the very quick transition of those DJ Basin locations to PDP. After our non-compete with Statoil rolls off, we started to layer in uh, the North Dakota mineral position. So we actively add to that. We're focusing in on all parts of the basin there. You know, previously I mentioned the position west of the Nansenana Klein, Williams and McKenzie counties. We're targeting that obviously because we know the rocks so well, but also targeting east of the Nesson, Montreal, Dunn counties, because there's just some tremendous activity there by, by operators as well. And so 2015 or so is when really Brigham Resources starts to hit its stride, putting together the position in the Southern Delaware Basin, acquire the initial position in Pecos County from Whiting, and they start to drill the first wells. And it's really at that point with the Brigham Resources team integrating that Southern Delaware position in the portfolio that we start to work with them and start to identify tracks and start to capitalize on that and buy under, you know, the Brigham Resources drill bit. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we wound up selling that position under Brigham Resources to 
Diamondback as a part of the overall sale where Diamondback bought the roughly 80,000 acres or so that Brigham Resources have put together on a leasehold basis. They also bought, I think it was probably 5,000 or so acres. I'd have to double check that number to be sure, but 5,000 or so acres in late 2016, closed that transaction in 2017. So again, similar to what I mentioned before, um, you know, it really was the midstream system with Statoil that helped facilitate that deal. We, at least internally within Brigham Resources, think that the mineral position that we put together really helped solidify Diamondback's desire to buy our Southern Delaware position because now they've got uh, a leasehold position with a Spanish trail lookalike there in, in Pecos County that they then can, as it gets converted by them, drop that down into their uh, Viper Energy partners, which they've done along the way. So that sale happens. You're starting to see tremendous well results. So we really start to ramp up uh, the activity. So at that point, 17, 18, we're buying across all the different basins uh, with an increased emphasis in the Permian Basin. You just start to see some really tremendous well results. You know, I think with our technical team, uh, up until that point, we'd always focused on the Delaware Basin, just some really terrific economics there. It's a little harder actually to buy in the Midland Basin. So I would say if you looked at that point, we're probably buying four to one in the Delaware Basin relative to the Midland Basin. That being said, I would say here most recently we've had some tremendous success in the, in, in the Midland Basin. But, you know, it was really though, and uh, we talked about this a couple of weeks when we were together, Tim, but in 2017 is really where we saw the inflection point. You know, it was, you start to see the ramp in the rig count uh, the ramp in production volumes, the ramp in, in cash flows, such that you have the chance to go public and affect an exit in that manner. And so really it was in 2017 that we start the process uh, to go public. And at that stage, give me the the one-liners, your how many NRAs roughly, you know, what what is your, you know, next 12 months cash flow? Like what's the approximate size? Because the I'm sure when you did the rounds with the banks, everyone kind of has their gut feel and what they think the size needs to be and what the appetite of the market is. And, you know, you said you started in mid 2017 and, and then you can walk us through that ebb and flow process. You got out April, 2019, it's almost two years, right? So yeah. many um, moons ago, but I'll try to give you some of that data. Sure, so sure. high level, high, high level. <laughs> yeah, no, so I think, you know, one of the key metrics I always heard was as you talk to banks and we, we talked to m many banks throughout history, uh, Credit Suisse had been a big supporter of ours and ultimately uh, they were lead left on, on our IPO. Really, the banks were pointing towards kind of $100 million of EBITDA, if you thought about that and targeting that to have the, the necessary scale to interest investors. Um, really, what you're trying to do is have a big enough entity to go public with. And I think ultimately at that $18 share price and roughly the, the share count at that point, we're right around the billion, billion dollar company when we went public. And so that was kind of a couple of the key hurdles in my mind as we think about really you want institutional investors feel good about putting in all the work to understand the company, to value the company, to make that initial investment. And so probably that $100 million of EBITDA, billion dollar enterprise value at that point was real critical. And so 2017, we really see the production ramp, the, the, the ramp in the rigs, ducks, uh, permits happening. And so the board approves the process to go public because at that point we really had to, the, the primary mission was to build out the accounting team. Um, because we had shared uh, a jointly shared accounting staff with Brigham Resources. And so we could begin that process, hire our controller, November, December of 17, he rapidly adds, and, and we're off to the races with the accounting staff. As we think about, maybe, maybe we'll just talk about some of the history of, of the IPO process, because 
Sure. It's, it's convoluted. It, there's there's lots of ebbs and flows. It can be <laughs> pretty rocky as you walk across it and try to get through the process. But 2018, really the keys are to identify the banks you're going to work with. Who are your lead banks? So at that point, we identify Credit Suisse and Goldman as a couple of our lead banks. Uh, who are the law firms you're going to work with? So at that point, we're working with B&E, Doug McWilliams, Thomas Zentner uh, were our key contacts there. Very supportive throughout the entirety of the process start to putting together the document. So the document is the S-1 that gets filed, at least initially privately with the SEC, and then eventually flips to a public document. So we're going throughout that process, continue to add to staff. Also, interestingly, during that period, we're actually conducting dry runs in terms of doing quarterly reporting. You know, we're putting together press releases uh, as if we were public, putting together 10 Qs to make sure you're ready to go public. Because we had at that point, kind of April, May of 18, at least the thought that in the fall of 18, we'd likely go public. We're also spending both myself, Blake Williams and Jacob, a lot of time going to institutional investor events. Because if you think back to 18, there weren't a lot of institutional investors familiar with minerals. So there was a lot of education, you know, having to explain the difference between a net mineral acre or a net royalty acre. You know, what is a mineral? You know, leasing minerals, how does that happen? What does a lease mean? You know, how do you guys generate your cash flow? So there was a lot of background work that went into educating investors in that late 2017, 2018 timeframe into 2019. As I mentioned, kind of the hope was to go public late in 18. Unfortunately, the, the, the equity markets weren't there. You know, equity markets have to be almost perfect for a company to go public. There's got to be and, low. And describe that. Like, yeah. what is what is perfect equity markets or the right environment or the window of opportunity being narrow? These are high level things that are thrown around a lot. What are the factors that determine determine that? Yeah. So I think first and foremost, you know, any investor, when they think about making a, uh, an investment in an energy company, they want solid, strong energy prices. You can't be in the midst of a downward energy cycle. They want low volatility in the market, meaning that the market's relatively stable. You're not having five, 600 up and down point up and down days on the Dow. You know, they want uh, a management team. I think that that they can trust. And so that's an important point. So you're out there, crude oil pricing strong, low volatility, overall market sentiments good. You know, the Fed, everything's acting appropriately, acting well, such that the equity markets are performing. And so because at the end of the day, you're asking these individuals to make a big commitment to the company and the management team, do all the work to evaluate you and, and, and make that undertake that decision whether to go public. And so it's almost like, the reserves of a perfect storm. It's got to be perfectly clear, blue skies, almost a bluebird day if you're skiing. You know, you've had, you know, 12 inches of powder and now you have a week of perfect skiing conditions where it's, you know, 32 degrees and you can ski forever in really good conditions. And so you're really looking for that perfect window to go public. And so, you know, it wasn't there in 2018. But the key is to be constantly ready as you think about going public. So you've got to maintain all your filings with the public or sorry, with the SEC. So all that's happening in the background. Public investors aren't seeing that because you're getting those documents ready, resubmitting those on a quarterly basis. So you're ramping up that. You're continuing to ask, answer any SEC questions. You as a team are just in a constant state of readiness in terms of hitting the road at any one point. And so very fortunately, kind of 
early 2019, we start to see the overall markets act better. And so uh, ultimately at the end of the day, launch our process, I think flip the, the company public in terms of taking the S1 and making it publicly available to look at, I think either late March or early April of 2019. And then we have uh, an eight day, eight day or so roadshow that we're going through visiting with institutional investors in New York, Boston, we hit Chicago, Dallas, Houston, Los Angeles, a lot of phone calls along the way too. So it's it's a grind, but at the end of the day, you're you're asking people to make a big commitment. And obviously that roadshow today is much different than in the post-COVID world where a lot of those, those meetings were held virtually. But uh, to me, there's no better way that for an institutional investor to get to know the management team and the management team to, to really pitch their story to the institutional investors and to meet one-on-one in their offices. And it just feels people are very open, can ask a lot of questions and, and they're hard questions. You know, you're asking them to invest a lot of capital. So you've got to be constantly ready to answer that hard question. So it's a very stressful process, but, you know, obviously it's one that the team met the challenge and, and we were able to complete that process in, in April of 2019 and very fortunately take the company public. And at that point, the private equity firms own about 65% of Brigham Minerals. And so that's both the private equity firms as well as management. And then about 35% of the company is owned by uh, the new group of investors that have come in through the IPO. And that was majority institutional? Yeah. And so very, very fortunately, Brigham Exploration, we've ha- always had very solid investor support from the New York and Boston area. Uh, if you really go back and look at um, some of the old Brigham Exploration materials, Fidelity, Wellington, were always solid supporters of, of Brigham. And they're, they're very large shareholders now in today's world. And so had some really, the best way to say it is when you perform well for people and made them a lot of money, they're likely to invest with you on a go forward basis. And so, you know, us having very fortunately as a team perform well, made people a sizable amount of money in the public markets in 2012, when we closed the, the uh, Statoil deal, they were ready to, to jump in and, and very fortunately support us in April of 19 when we went public. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Opportune LLP for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leading global energy business advisory firm, Opportune is well positioned to provide world-class technical, financial, and operational capabilities to minerals and royalties companies. Whether it's back office outsourcing, resource and reserve definition, land due diligence and administration, GIS mapping, valuation work, data and system integration, financial reporting, tax advisory, or buy and sell side assistance, Opportune LLP has got you covered. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Is your team interested in de-risking their underwriting on minerals acquisitions? What about maximizing the value of your minerals on exits? Source Energy is pioneering energy intelligence to help you stop guessing when, where, and if wells are going to be drilled and completed on your minerals. If you're interested in tracking daily frac crew activity, buying white space before permits are filed, buying permitted acres just before the rigs show up, buying minerals at permit pricing when drilling is in progress, buying ducts with imminent flush production, or maximizing the value of your permits and ducts anytime you exit your minerals, then please visit www sourceenergy.com slash minerals or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. I also want to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. 
With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. No, that, that's great. I mean, when you look at y'all's trading volumes compared to some peers, they're a bit lower, but with 65% held by PE, private equity out of the gate, my guess was it had to be largely institutional and those are brand names. That's great. That's what everyone really wants versus lots of retail. And then the, the trading volume goes up as a result. Right. But one thing I want to comment on just a little bit of a, you know, a side conversation, you had mentioned road shows or investor meetings in a post code world. A lot more is, is virtual. I think that's an interesting little anecdote to, you know, unpack if you may, because you guys are busy and there's, commitments to travel somewhere and, and be in that city, coordinate the calendars of an investor who is likely a generalist and they're not, you know, they got a lot of balls in the air. It's way easier to fit in an hour slot via Zoom than it is to coordinate everyone's schedules of being in person. You know, I'm a really a BD person at my core. I think the business development roadshow model going forward is those preliminary meetings, the screening meetings are virtual. There's no replacement, as you mentioned, for in-person, right? You need to, if someone's going to give you money, there's, you got to look them in the eye. You got to spend time with them socially, go out to dinner, have questions, all that, right? And I think a lot of folks still enjoy, we're human beings at the end of the day. You're never going to replace that. But the efficiency of that initial round is, I think, that's a silver lining of COVID. As a public company that's consistently out there talking to investors, can you Speak to that. Have you can you echo that at all, or is that is that more? I, yeah, I think ultimately at the end of the day, there's no replacement for you know those face to face meetings. You know, as you indicated, Tim. You know, the, just the the importance from a BD perspective of meeting one on one with people to, uh, because in some cases, you know, we're we're making offers to folks, we're making cash offers with an equity component. And so you're trying to get them comfortable with the company, sell the company, because obviously you're asking them to take equity in return. And so meeting with people is critical. Uh, when you mentioned inefficiencies of potentially a roadshow, it's that when you're, especially when you're in New York City or Boston, there's there's 30 minutes between meetings where you're hopping in, you know, the suburban and, and the whole team's racing to the next meeting. Or in some instances, you know, you're actually fitting in a, a 30 minute phone call with an investor that couldn't initially take a face-to-face -face meeting. And so, you know, that's can be inefficient, but I still think highly valuable because at the again, as, as you mentioned, at the end of the day, you're asking these people to place a lot of faith in the management team, invest a lot of capital. And so to me, there's no better way to do that than in person. And so, you know, obviously uh, COVID made that hard. Everybody's having to do that virtually. But very fortunately, you know, I think we're starting to think, see things turn around and we're starting to go to in-person meetings again. You know, you mentioned uh, Carl earlier and he does a tremendous work doing the MARC conference. You know, very fortunately, April of last year, I think that was one of the first in-person meetings that, that we it, it was to. the first. Yeah. I remember calling Carl. I was like, Carl, are you really going to do be able to do a conference? Because yeah. at the time I was with Energy Council and I just know you know, Energy Council is owned by a very large entity that's backed by Blackstone. It's probably a billion dollars in total. They have events all over the world. And just the perceived risk at that time of putting 500 people in a room was just really, it just didn't seem possible. 
And Carl's like, yeah, it's me. Well, yeah. people sign a waiver and we're, we're going, baby. We're, yeah. we're opening it up to the patio. And I remember I walked in and it was like 500 people. And I was like, oh, baby, this is awesome. We're back. You know, it was just great to get together. And so interestingly, not just Carl, but now you're starting to see investor events turn into, into live in-person events. And so March of this year, one of the banks, Credit Suisse, was one of the first to roll out their investor conference that they've typically held in Vail. So that was live and in-person early March. Piper just had their conference in Las Vegas last or early this month, kind of right after everyone uh, wrapped up their year-end conference calls. So that's a Las Vegas conference that pretty typically targets the West Coast investors. And so you're starting to see a lot more of that. I know uh, in June, there's a couple of conferences in New York and Boston, RBC is one of them. So I think, you know, hopefully the largely virtual is in the rear view mirror and, and we're live and in person and, and telling people your story. Uh, and in particular, you know, how good Brigham Minerals is performing, you know, in person with people going forward. And, and I think kind of layer onto that, you know, as you wind up with kind of a more solidified or an investor group that's been with you for a while, you can then supplement those live and in-person meetings with quarterly conference calls, Zoom meetings, just to update people as to, you know, how the company's performing, the latest stats, give them the opportunity to answer questions. So to me, we're headed the right direction. You know, maybe that's 60% in-person, 40% virtual. So I think we're in kind of that world where doing both uh, in-person and virtual meetings uh, as needed, but it feels a lot better that we're headed towards that more in-person world. Yeah, no, listen, I last, last comment on this. I think Zoom meetings and virtual meetings that are one-to-one -one, uh, that can be personal are fine. Virtual conferences are horrible. So I'm glad we're, we're moving, we're moving beyond that phase, but yeah, anyways, I'm sure, you know, you don't hear the occasional person, you know, clicking away on their keyboard and you wonder how, you know, how much they're actually listening to what you're saying. So yeah, I agree with that. Let's talk about April, 2019 to, to current. So you're looking at roughly three years of public company. I want to first attack uh, the the secondary public offerings you guys have had. So the first one, correct if I'm wrong, if there's others, but First one was December 2019, about 11 million shares were offered and 5 million of that were from the PE. So that was kind of their first mm -hmm. partial exit. And then in June, 2020, there was 6.6 .6 million shares, I believe from the three Ps. September, 2020, a little under 4.4, and that was just Warburg. Mm -hmm. And then September, 2020, you guys actually did a, a share repurchase program of uh, about 440,000 shares. Now. Would love your your comment around that. I think, you know, and I've talked to Bob Ravnis at Kimball, for instance. They had a lot of private equity exiting their stock uh, last year, and that that drove the stock value down below where they felt it fundamentally should trade. They felt it was a great opportunity for the company to buy shares back. I'm just putting two and two together here. You had a, a wave of exits from private equity. Was that kind of an opportunistic time to add value for the Brigham team to, to repurchase some shares. You've since wrote it up nicely, as has Campbell, right? So, I mean, that's a theory well done, but uh, just some comments on your interaction with the equity market since going public and, and that whole process and takeaways, et cetera. Yeah, you know, the realization was that the thesis behind going public was to have capital availability to go out and continue to consolidate the mineral space. And so we felt that that, and, and you've heard me talk about this on the different conference calls. It's really, in my mind, a bifurcated kind of uh, process that we want to run one or ground game deals, which historically have averaged 50 to 60 acres, uh, net royalty acres a piece. 
So that's where we're probably deploying 10 to 20 million of capital per quarter. And then kind of larger deals, the 40 to $100 million deals that we're targeting that might compromise cash plus equity to the seller. And so the realization with that, that you're going to continue to consolidate the space, you know, as we buy deals, you ramp up, uh, you're drawing your credit facility. And at some point, you're probably going to have to go back to the equity markets to help pay down the credit facilities so you can reload and, and buy again. And so coming into December of 19, I think, you know, the credit facility might have been in the 90 to $100 million range, the realization that we want to uh, reload so we can continue to, we're having quite a bit of success consolidating the market so we can have clear runway throughout 2020 to buy. As we think back in history, there probably could have, could not have been a more fortunate time to hit the markets in December of 19. I think we, you know, we wind up with $35 million or so of cash on the balance sheet as COVID hits the world. And so, you know, we're in a tremendously different position than almost any other energy company in the world. Cash on the balance sheet, no debt. We don't have to hedge our volumes because if you think about, you know, crude oil prices in March and April of 2020 hitting rock bottom, you know, one of the days you're negative 30, you know, but realistically you're positive 30 to $35. And so we don't feel the pressure to play, layer on hedges and because we, we think that, you know, crude oil is going to rebound, you know, it, it's volatile market it's going to rebound. So we want our shareholders to benefit in the entire run-up of crude oil prices. And so crude oil prices start to get better, you know, private equity at the end of the day, they always have to monetize their positions. They have to distribute to their limited partners. Uh, and so at that secondary that you've talked about in June of 20, that was a liquidation by, by them to, to continue the distributions uh, to their LPs. You know, throughout that kind of summer, people can read about it. Warburg Pincus is starting to exit some of their energy investments. And so they contact us and there's a realization that they're going to want to sell down the remainder of their position in September of 20. And as you mentioned, one of the, the great, one of the interesting pieces of that is us, we as a mineral company are constantly evaluating the repurchase of shares versus buying another mineral acre. And so at, in September of 20, I think the share price is maybe in the upper eights. And we acquire roughly 10% of that secondary offering. We still have cash on the balance sheet at that point. I think deploy five to $6 million of cash on the balance sheet to buy back those shares. And as you mentioned, you know, th those shares now, you know, purchasing the upper eights are now trading at, I think, over 25 today. So a tremendous, it's an investment decision, on, you know, just like any other decision we're making here at the company. And so we complete that process in September of 20. And really since then, Yorktown and Pinebrook have uh, been out there in the markets just under 144, 144A transactions, kind of dribbling those shares out over time. Yorktown did a little bit of that late last year, kind of the, the November timeframe. And here most recently in March, Pinebrook's done some of that. So real interestingly, you know, uh, we mentioned earlier in the podcast, uh, the private equity groups owning about 65% of the company post going IPO in April of 19. Well, that balance of private equity ownerships now sub 10%. So to me, a lot of people and mentioned the term private equity overhang. And so that's just, you know, an investor always is cautious about when the private equity guys might wanna further unwind their position and create maybe a, a turbulent time for the stock. And so really, I think that those times are well, well past us. And so with sub 10% ownership, uh, by the private equity firms in the stock, you know, we feel really good about where we are. If you look at our investor bench, it's Fidelity, it's the Magellans, Blackrocks, we have an incredibly strong, long only ownership in the company. 
And so I think, you know, we're just set up really well for 2022 and 2023. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Need energy industry management experience at your fingertips? Opportune LLP, a leading global energy business advisory firm, has the capabilities needed to overcome your minerals and royalties team's technical, operational, and financial challenges. To learn more, search Opportune's podcast E2B, Energy to Business, on Apple and Spotify Podcasts where Opportune examines emerging financial and technology trends and provides a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Predicting operator behavior is the name of the game in the mineral space, but using permits and relocations alone to do this is not enough. Detecting well pads and frack ponds in order to see which permits are on the rig schedule discount permits that won't ever be sputtered, and determine which ducks are next up on the frack schedule is key to de-risking your underwriting. By using satellite imagery and AI, Source Energy shows oil-filled well pad construction before permits are filed, shows frack pond filings even before the crew arrives, and shows pinpoint frack crew movements daily, so you can get ahead of drilling activity and completions. If you're interested in leveraging this technology to revolutionize your ground game, then please feel free to visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. No, that's great. That, that was going to be my question. Who have you seen kind of come in and displace the private equity groups? And it sounds like more institutional investors that are name brand, which is, which is phenomenal. Let's give a little context now on the portfolio. So let's use Q4 2021, given that you guys just released your overview of the portfolio and the financials and everything not too long ago. If you want to just kind of give a high level snapshot on NRAs and kind of the basin split and you know, all, all the statistics that matter, right? Yeah. Yep, of, yep. Happy yeah. to do that. I'll, I'll look at my cheat sheet while we do, while we'll do that to make sure. sure the numbers are right. But, you know, really interesting, Tim, you mentioned this earlier, but Q4, uh, we did our biggest deal to date, acquiring about 8,400 acres in the DJ Basin. So we actually saw about 8% growth in our mineral position from the end of Q3 to the end of Q4. So the end of Q4, we have about 90, 92,400 net royalty acres that we've acquired throughout the history of the company. And as I mentioned, that's that's doing a lot of the hard work. That's probably on average 60 to 70 acres per deal. So at this point, it might be something upward of 2,000 different deals that we've done to accumulate that position. Break that down a little bit. I always found that to be very interesting and, and put you guys in a class of your own. You were a, a ground game public company. The first large transaction you did was that DJ deal, which I'd love to break down in a little more detail here in a bit. But how many transactions again did you mention? We might be upward of 2,000 or so transactions. I think last time I, I definitively looked for answer we were 17, 1800. So I think we're approaching probably 2,000 transactions. So if you think about the 
the 192,400 uh, 92, acres, divide that by just on a round basis, 2,000 transactions, you know, you can see that that's right at between, right around probably 45 acres or so tra per transaction. So, because the other publics, you know, some talk about we need a minimum threshold of size for it to be accretive to GNA. And, you know, others are just wanting to just hunt at the, the larger deals. Um, you know, I think one of the challenges is if the equity markets aren't there, you can go a while without really adding much to your inventory. But I kind of dug through everything and I'll, in terms of the acquisition budget and what you guys deployed since the beginning of going public to today. And this is, again, just for everyone listening, this is ground game. This is uh, grinding, right? And, and doing a lot of small transactions. So Q1 2019, you guys did 41 million roughly in acquisitions. Yep. Q2 2019, about 40 million in acquisitions. That largely skewed to the Permian, about 71%, about 23% in scoop. Q3 2019, you guys did 99 million in acquisitions. I have a note here, 65 different deals, Permian, Scoopstack, and Williston. Q4 2019, a little under 40 million in acquisitions across 51 different transactions. And I looked at the production growth as well. So if you look at Q1 to Q4 2019, you guys were about 53, 5,400 barrels of oil equivalent a day. And you start getting up around 9,600. So some significant growth through the ground game in 2019, which you know I'll admit, right, from the outside looking in without digging into your IR details, I'd say, man, Brigham hasn't done anything. <laughs> They've no. gone public, they haven't done any deals. And you did, you did quite a bit, right? You know? Yeah, we have. And so it's, it's doing the hard work every day. You know, Our team is 50 people here in Austin. Uh, we always talk about half the team being on the deal evaluation side, the other half. Uh, being involved in the accounting function, the division work function. So really those are guys who are involved in the process after we bring a, a deal in-house. And so really we've set up that 20-odd person acquisition group to prosecute both the ground game deals, uh, generate ground game deals, as well as evaluate larger transactions. And so, you know, it's really critical when you think about being involved in the mineral space and you're mailing thousands of letters on a Friday, because hopefully they, they get them on the Monday and then they call you Tuesday, Wednesday, that you know, you get back once a potential seller is interested in doing a deal, you want to get back to them rapidly with an offer. It's kind of like fishing, you know, a little twitch on the line and you've got to be responsive because, you know, you never know at what instance a seller is potentially interested. And so when you think about these sellers, a lot of times this could be their single most valuable asset that's been passed down to them from a grandparent, their parents over time. And so it then affords them the opportunity. We've uh, 1031 vacation homes, ranches, houses, people want to do trips. And so, you know, people will sell us a third of their position, come back later to sell the next third, or we've bought a quarter of an interest. And so just being very responsive to people. And so, you know, one of the things that you mentioned, Tim, was just kind of that growth in production volumes. You know, we did do a rather, rather largest deal. You know, you pointed that out in Q3 of 2019, roughly about almost 100 million in transactions. There was a large Loving County deal there under Shell that really contributed to our volumes in the fourth quarter and the first quarter of, of 20. And so that was probably at that point, uh, the largest deal that we had done as a company uh, acquired that interestingly from a trust. Obviously then in, in 20 COVID hits and we kind of rapidly shut down. There's just a shock to the entirety of the system that, uh, you know, mineral sellers are, all, all parties are locked up. Sellers don't, aren't sure what to do. We want to be obviously uh, cash on the balance sheet. We were in a tremendous position, undrawn revolver. We have a lot of flexibility. Well, let's wait 
let the COVID situation sort itself out a little bit, and then we can start to ramp up the buying activity. And so, you know, after the April timeframe, you start to see the markets get better, uh, really probably second half of June, right around 4th of July, markets start to feel a little bit better, crude starts trading better, and all of a sudden, you know, we wind up with minimal uh, sellers interested in buying. And so it's really some of those deals that we did in Q3 and Q4 of 2020, where we deployed, you know, around 40 million of capital were really nice undeveloped sections, a lot of them largely in the Permian that today are, when, you know, when you heard about our drilling or our results in, in Q4, those are the transactions that are contributing today to those volumes. So just tremendous response to those transactions. And so, um, you know, one of the things that happened is obviously, you know, we're off to the races in, in 2020, 2021, and then summer of 21, crude oil prices start escalating pretty rapidly and you wind up with, you know, in an 80 plus dollar crude oil environment and all of a sudden mineral sellers are again, become cautious. You know, we're at $80 crude, that sounds good. They're willing to take a lot more risk. And so, you don't have as many sellers out there in the marketplace anymore. So, so how do we respond to that? Well, we redouble our efforts to get letters out, calls, because the minerals game has always been a statistics game. You know, if you send out thousands of letters, historically, you're going to close on X percent of deals with people. And so, you know, that percentage goes down. So how do we adjust for that? Increase the throughput of the deals. And so become more efficient as a team evaluating deals. And so, we, you know, we start to gain success, Q2, Q3, deploy very vast uh, portions of our budget to the to the Permian, really nice acquisitions there. And then Q4, as you mentioned, do the largest deal to date, about a $92 million deal acquiring 8,400 acres in the DJ Basin under some really strong operators. Uh, you know, at that point, we indicate we're going to add 1,100 to 1,200 barrels a day uh, to production in 2022 from the deal. Uh, it adds about 2.6 net activity wells to inventory, already of which we're really starting to see some nice conversions by PDC. They're lightning and thunder pad, I think they're Vega pad. So we're seeing conversions from duck to PDP and from permit to drilling. So I, I think it's going to be a really nice deal for us over the next three to five years as we continue to see conversions. And so, and, you know, we, we follow right on the heels of that with, uh, in, in uh, I think in February of this year, announcing uh, a Midland, a larger-ish Midland Basin transaction, about 30, $32 million or so, with the vast majority of that going to be drilled for us by Pioneer and Endeavor. So a really strong position there. And we've indicated that, you know, that th that deal is likely to close in the early uh, early to mid-April. You know, I think interestingly there, just for you and, and the listeners is, you know, both of those deals were the first deals that we've included in the equity component in terms of the consideration to the seller. So it's really the first utilization of a cash plus equity deal to help get a deal across the finish line. And, you know, that's important to us because it really minimizes the cash that we have to draw on the revolver, minimizes having to go back to the equity markets to get incremental capital. Because I think one of the things that's been important to our investors, we've not gone back to raise capital since April, of, sorry, since December of 19. So, you know, over almost a two plus year period now, we've never gone to the equity markets to raise capital. And what we've done now is we've ramped down the amount of cash that we've distributing to our shareholders. So it's gone from 100% to 80%. So we're funding some of that ground game budget internally, as well as divesting some of the portfolio. So what we had indicated here on the most recent conference call was that fully the entirety of our Q4 ground game was funded between retained cash flow and asset divestitures. And so I think it's a real 
powerful signal of the machine that we can go out there and ex execute on those 50 to 60 acre deals and hopefully going forward, you know, to the extent we can continue to, uh, what I've challenged the team with is to continue that divestiture opportunity set that between that retained cash flow and divestiture is really minimize the need to go out there to the equity markets to do anything unless we find a large deal that requires a more significant piece of cash to it. The portfolio optimization aspect is interesting to me as a public, you know, at, at a high level, I would go in and say, well, theoretically, you know, public mineral companies shouldn't really ever sell anything. They should just always be adding inventory and cash flow to balance sheet. You know, the first deal that I saw on the public side selling in a large way was, was Blackstone Minerals to Pegasus. I think it was a $100 million deal in the middle of 2020. And I believe that was... Uh, largely to, to pay down some debt, you know, like your, your share repurchase program, is this largely financial? It's redeploying that capital in a better place, you think, to get overall returns? I mean, how much, I don't know, brain damage is the right word, but how much effort gets put into, okay, let, let's try to rationalize some of these assets here. Is that a part of the team that you're always kind of looking at those opportunities? Because you guys are in a lot of basins and, and these basins ebb and flow in terms of the frothiness and the A&D environment, you know, when you look at Scoop and Stack and DJ, Delaware and Midland have very different dynamics and the Bakken, they all have very different buyers, very different, any type of headwinds they might face. If it's Delaware, it might be infrastructure. If it's Scoop Stack, obviously they had a reset. DJ has the political challenges. So how, how much effort do you guys put into that? Thinking about what we might be able to rationalize. Yeah. So, you know, one, one of the things that I've talked, and I think probably this was two or three conference calls ago, is challenging the team to do one divestiture transaction per quarter to help supplement that retained cash flow to fully fund our CapEx for the quarter. And so, you know, I think what we're doing as a public mineral company is you're looking at opportunities that are less developed, that someone in the private space is willing to pay more for. And so basically you're looking at an asset. So today we've done closed on three different transactions. Uh, those three transactions generate about $21 million of cash flow from those three sales. But those, those three transactions only probably reduced our production by about 110 barrels of oil per day. So very low cash flow amounts associated with that, but someone on the other side is actually placing quite a bit of value on those undeveloped locations. And so we're generating a 15, 16, 17 times cash flow on that asset sale. And the real interesting counterpoint to that is here, we've done the DJ transaction and Midland Basin transaction that are more five to six X cash flow. So you can see kind of the financial theory that's behind that selling assets at a much higher multiple, buying at a much lower multiple and redeploying that capital and generating immediate, immediate cash flow for shareholders. So, you know, what I mentioned to you is we sold or divested assets with about 110 barrels a day of production. Well, we're redeploying that into deals in the DJ deal. You know, I mentioned doing 1100 to 1200 barrels a day in 2022, the Midland Basin deal we've indicated, I think it's going to do 225 to 275 barrels a day of production. So basically in essence, we're redeploying that. And so, you know, the team is always looking for those areas that, you know, we see Pendulum parties, you know, active in those areas. So reaching out to them, hey, we have assets that that you might be interested in. And so, you know, it's like any other buy decision that we're making, you know, that, you know, we'll, we'll provide a potential buyer with a list of our assets. They'll make us offers. We evaluate those offers. So, you know, our reservoir engineers, much as the same they're doing on the buy side, well, what's the intrinsic value of that asset? And if that potential buyer 
provides us an offer that's in excess of that intrinsic value that we calculated in turning. Well, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna sell that asset and redeploy that capital to the Permian and probably a cash flow heavy asset or cash flow heavy acquisition. And so to me, it's it's kind of a, a real efficient optimization of the portfolio that generates significant value to the shareholder because you know hopefully we've really minimized the need to go back and 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 uh, generate or you know do a primary equity offering out there in the markets. No, that's great. Yeah, it's just knowing the market and the basins and doing a, a cash flow arbitrage, for lack of better words, yeah. right? So going back to my earlier point, so you do this DJ deal and it's it's a little over 90 million. It, you know, you close on it December of 2021. You're almost, you're, you're over two and a half, you know, roughly two and a half years into being public. And it's the first kind of sizable transaction. Now, this is my own logic stream and I'll let you comment on it. You guys are 65% held by private equity out of the gate. A lot of the assets that start to come to market of scale that a public would be the logical buyer for are private equity held, right? So, and, you know, Kimball, a lot of their acquisitions have been of, of private equity back companies. So you have Kimball who comes out of the gate with no private equity, but then they get private equity layered into their stock through their growth model. And then they experience private equity overhang. Overhang, yeah. You may, and you know, they exit, stock goes down, it's rebounded nicely, so happy days. But was there any consideration of, hey, we already have 65% held by private equity. If, we, if some of these deals in the market, if we have to do you know, a share offering, and now we go up to 70, 75, 80% held by private equity, that, that's a challenge in terms of getting investor interest and maybe how the, the shareholders will react to it. As a result, we're, we'll look at the deals, but ground game, you know, we're able to continue to grow and we can stay within our uh, revolver and, and use existing cash flow. And then, you know, you fast forward to when you did the deal, the private equities have gone down to less than 10%. So you're not in that position. And, you know, your stock has rebounded nicely, markets are in a better place. And the seller was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a large family office. So you don't have that private equity decision. And then, the deal recently was with Echo, and Echo's got, you know, family offices and institutionals and a pension fund behind them. So again, not private equity. So that logic stream is that am I driving? You know, if I, am I on the right path here? What are your comments? Yeah. So I think you know we're not scared to incorporate you know a private equity firm into the capital structure via a large deal. I think you know that there's you know, a number of private equity backed deals that have come to market, not all of them trade, you know, one of the biggest headwinds that we face is just the seller's reservation price. So that 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 happens both in the face of ground game deals, as well as the larger marketed deals. You know, I think the beauty of what we've accomplished to date, and that and so that's that whittling down of the private equity overhang from 65% in April of 19 to less than 10%, you know, after these most, most recent sales announced by Pinebrook, uh, is that you know we do have the opportunity to layer in a private equity back deal and offer them stock because shareholders understand that we do a good job managing the sell down of those private equity held assets or shares in our company. And so to me, it's just another indication of the great job that we've done. You know, it's it's a very gradual process. Shareholders understand we manage it. 
the people that have been shareholders have done a good managing job managing it. And so to the extent a great deal is out there and we can do see a need to issue shares, we're not going to be scared of doing that. And, and uh, you know, to me, you know, an important facet of that is, you know, not drawing down debt too much because we've always talked about being very disciplined in terms of our capital structure, you know, not wanting to exceed say one and a half times debt to EBITDA. Um, because that really eliminates a lot of issues. One, when there's downturns, you know, our industry is full of examples of cyclicality and, and massive price swings. Um, you're not forced to take irrational actions. And those can include layering on hedges that six to 12 months later can be very punitive or having to go out there and undertake divestitures in the worst part of a market. Instead, you can control your own destiny. So, you know, you'll see us be very cautious on the debt piece. But, you know, I think, you know, there are deals out there. We're talking to people uh, about transactions, but we, we've always indicated that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the thesis behind going public was to consolidate. And so we'll continue to do search after larger deals and maybe deals even larger than the $100 million transaction that we did here in the fourth quarter. But, you know, our job is to be very disciplined in our underwriting and make sure we as a, as a company are paying the right price. And so often that right price can't be the, isn't necessarily the seller's right price. And so there's gotta be a meeting of meeting of the minds in terms of valuation. And so, you know, as, as some people say, oftentimes the best deal is the deal you didn't do because you didn't overpay for it. And so, uh, you know, our job is to be very disciplined, very consistent, maintain capital discipline and very, and, you know, watch the company grow because we put together a tremendous asset and watch it grow organically and then supplement that with acquisitions. And so some of what we talked about here on the uh, fourth quarter conference call was just the tremendous growth in the activity well uh, inventory that we have. So uh, we grew our activity wells from 10.2 net locations to 12.9. So, you know, almost 30% growth in our activity wells. You know, we've indicated on our guidance for 2022 that production volumes are likely to be 11,300 to 12,000 barrels a day this year. So the midpoint's 11,650. So if you look at that, that's greater than than 25% year over year growth from 2021 to 2022. So you can see how confident we are about the asset performing this year because we've been very disciplined in our process, the organic assets performing, we are seeing nice additions because I, I got asked this question on the conference call, how, how much of our uh, 2022 forecast is based on, you know, the $70 uh, million of, of ground game CapEx that we've uh, signaled for this year. And as and, and we think about that, you know, you're deploying capital throughout the year. And if you think about the midpoint of June, really, it's probably realistically only half of that 70 million contributing during 2022, because it's deployed in the second half of the year. So, you know, probably only 150 barrels or so, maybe max 200 barrels a day, of you know contribution from our 2022 acquisitions to that 11,650 barrel a day midpoint. So you know I, I think you know 2022 seems like we're really uh, set to perform well. That's great, and um, this has been a great discussion, Rob. I appreciate you walking through everything. You had mentioned the the capital budget of you know roughly 70 million for ground game this year. You know just walking through your portfolio real quick. You guys are just over 2,000 arrays, you know, 32% that's in the Delaware, 7% in the Midland Basin, 12% in the Scoop, 9% in the Stack, 27% DJ, and 9% in the Williston. In a higher, in an over $100 barrel environment, do certain basins become more attractive or you start to put a little more effort? Because in through 2020, 
and then going into Q4 2021, a majority of your deals, you know, we're talking 90% plus on the ground game were Permian. And I get it because underwriting any type of upside was near impossible during that period. And the only place with rigs and, you know, some sort of line of sight was the Permian. So I get that. Now that stuff is more economic everywhere, you got you, know, you guys come out of the gate, boom, with a large DJ deal in, in Q4 of last year. So do the other parts of your portfolio start to become a little more interesting and you broaden your scope, uh, I guess, for acquisitions going forward? What, what I'm getting at is a lot of people listen to this in the space that you would, that would feed you deals. Who should give, bring them a call? So, you know, one of the things I mentioned early on is just the continued focus on the tier one geology, tier one operators, because the key message to them is that if there are down cycles, they're going to be deploying capital to those areas, to that rock throughout the entirety of the cycle, because we, we have seen, and, and you rightly point out that, you know, there's been vast amounts of rigs added to the, to the northern part of the Midland Basin, the northeast part of the basin in Howard County, as you go south into Upton and Reagan, you know, operators, and you've seen even in the Delaware Basin, really people push the eastern part of the basin, a lot of operators. Well, you got to think, though, we're in $100 crude. If you go down to $75 crude, those are the first rigs that are going to go away. So you'll see Brigham as a company still continue to focus on the tier one geology because we think that that's, the, again, getting back to this point of converting undeveloped locations to crude developed producing, the highest probability of that happening is deploying capital to core tier one areas under well-capitalized operators because at the end of the day, they're the last people to turn the rigs free and they're continuing to drill your, your position uh, in highly effective manners. And so, you know, if somebody's going to bring us a deal, you know, you know, we're going to evaluate it and make sure it's tier one geology under a good operator, because that's what we've signaled the shareholders that we acquire. Fantastic. All right, sir. Well, thanks again for coming on. Been wanting to have you on for a while. And I think this is the right time to do it. Plenty to talk about your shares at an all-time high. Your share price, I should say, is trading at an all-time high. Your market cap is at an all-time high. And you're coming off a couple of great transactions. So keep it up. Best of luck with you and the team. And we'll see you in Mark in a couple of weeks. Yeah, sounds great. Look forward to it. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties Authority is a specialist advisory firm focused exclusively on the minerals and royalty space for oil and gas and renewables. With our leading content platform and thought leadership, our team is continually looking to bring awareness to the mineral space in order to help investors and companies buy and sell deals and form new partnerships. If you're interested in scheduling a call to explore ways the Minerals and Royalties Authority can help your team through our offering of consulting services for business development, marketing, capital raising, and A&D, then please send me an email at tim at mineralsauthority.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks. See you next time.